I think it's helpful to have some background on the whole experience in the church of early African-American members. You know, most people don't even know that they were a part of the early church. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. Thank you for joining us today as we discuss Chapter 5 of the Saints, Volume 2, Bowed Down to the Grave. And today in the studio, we have with us Mark Staker. Mark is a master curator with the Historic Sites Division in the Church History Department. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. I appreciate being here. Mark, do you have any projects that you're currently working on that you'd want to tell us about? Um, we're doing a, a quite a bit of research on, in Fayette, New York, where in 2030 we'll celebrate the bicentennial of the organization of the church, and we're trying to understand that site better. And we have some exciting things going on in Nauvoo, uh, where uh, some buildings are being restored that will help us to tell more about the Nauvoo Temple. And I'm helping in very small ways with those, and I'm also helping uh, pull together some research for some colleagues. We appreciate you joining us, Mark. In today's episode, we're going to be talking, as Shaylin mentioned, about Chapter 5. And one of the things that's kind of complicated and why we're glad that you joined us today in Chapter 5 is we learn about some African-Americans who were with the saints when they made the first trek west, And it's kind of a little bit confusing. It's something that you're a little more familiar with. Do you want to start in the beginning, so to speak, and tell us about what's going on with people of African descent? I appreciate it as I read that account, the highlight of several African-American members of the church. Some of them, like Jane Manning James, are well-known. Today has gotten a lot of attention, and others, like Oscar Crosby, are not heard of before. And so it's great that they get a a little bit of attention. I think it's helpful to have some background on the whole experience in the church of early African-American members and how we get to that point. Most people don't even know that they were a part of the early church. But the Book of Mormon starts out, Lehi is warning the people that they're going to be brought into bondage if they don't change their ways. And then the major theme of the book is bondage and getting freedom. There's another word used from time to time in the book as well, and that is slavery. Uh, Slavery is in the Book of Mormon. King Benjamin comes out and he says slavery is wicked. Right. Well, Why is that important? Because people in America at the time were very attuned to slavery as an issue. And as they read through the Book of Mormon and see slavery is wicked, it was noticeable. So when you get Latter-day Saints gathering in Missouri in 1831 and 1832, the Missourians, their neighbors, start saying, They are exciting our slaves. Well, what are they doing to excite the slaves? What are they doing to create problems? Well, if you read the Book of Mormon, it is hard to look past that slavery is wicked and that these people coming in believe that slavery is wicked. So whether justified or not, the Missourians around the area attack members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and use uh, slavery as an issue. I think in Saints Volume 1, we learned about the publication of the church newspaper, and it seems like there was an article that was published that had a sentiment that was 
sort of anti-slavery, and then it was redacted quickly because it just inflamed these people, their neighbors, to think, ah, these Northerners are going to come down here and they're going to change our way of life. Yes, exactly. As W.W. Phelps, William Wine Phelps, who is a newspaper editor in Canandaigua, New York, just south of Palmyra in Manchester, where the Book of Mormon comes out, he is an abolitionist. So he is opposed uh, to slavery. And when he joins the church and becomes the newspaper editor in Missouri, it's hard for him to not continue that same line of thinking. And so he does write an article addressing free blacks. Right. And so in his mind, he says, oh, well, I'm not saying anything about slavery. And so he tries to step back as you look through what he writes later. He says, well, I don't say anything about slavery. But that's why you need to look at all this in the context of the Book of Mormon, because we typically ignore the Book of Mormon as part of this coming forward. If you read the Book of Mormon, it's clear that slavery is a, a part of all this discussion. So even though he's reaching out to free uh, blacks and inviting them to come and join the church, it's clear that slavery is an underlying issue there as well. Are they trying to join the church? I mean, I know that the people down there are afraid of that, but so what happens? Apparently there are some that join the church. We don't really know much about those earliest converts. The two that we know best, uh, one, his friends call him Black Pete. We actually don't know his legal name. People have offered suggestions, but we just don't know uh, what his legal name was. But uh, Black Pete was very charismatic and as George A. Smith, one of the first church historians, says that he became a prophet among them. And so what does that mean? Uh, he was providing some kind of spiritual guidance and influence to some of the earliest converts in Kirtland, Ohio. But they end up getting uh, misled a little bit in their behavior, and that's what Section 42 of the Doctrine and Covenants is primarily addressing issues like that and trying to help bring them back in the path that they should be uh, developing. And to, So we don't know a lot about black people, but the one that we do know more about, Elijah Abel, right during this very same time period, and when you have W.W. Phelps inviting people of color to come to Missouri, Elijah Abel is one of the people that joins the church at that same time in 1832. In 1836, he's ordained an elder, and he goes on uh, shortly after that and serves a mission, and he's involved in uh, many of the same stories that you could tell about other early Latter-day Saints. We, you could we tell learned about, about him. him, yeah, in Volume 1, and he's <laughs> one of the touching stories in Volume 1. He has some converts that are struggling, and he, he goes back and helps them to make sure that they're strengthened in a time of great need. I mean, he just, like you say, it, it could be any missionary story was Elijah's story. Exactly. At that same time, there is an abolitionist that comes through Kirtland and begins promoting abolishing slavery, and he creates some excitement, and Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery write some editorials distancing the church from the abolitionists, not saying that we're in support of slavery, but we don't support the political agenda of people who, in, in their attempt to solve the issue. So that's the context that kind of leads us up to Nauvoo. And in Nauvoo, Jane Manning James joins the church in Connecticut. She is a free black. 
her parents are not slaves. She's born out of slavery. She joins the church and gathers in Nauvoo with uh, other, some other early African-American members of the church that also gather there. Who are some of those other ones? You mentioned Elijah Abel, but then Walker Lewis, he's another one. What's his story? Walker Lewis is described as one of the best elders in the church. He holds the priesthood. He's a leader in the community there in Lowell, Massachusetts. Comes out to Utah, doesn't have really a good experience, a good reception here, and he returns to Massachusetts where he dies shortly after that. Let's go back to Jane Manning James and the saints that have come to Nauvoo. Can you tell us about their experience and as I recall, toward the end of Joseph's life, as he mounts his presidential campaign, slavery also is one of the things that he's talking about in his campaign for the presidency. It is. Joseph Smith opposed to slavery as part of his campaign. He wants to do away with it, but he wants to have the federal government pay slave owners for their slaves so that they're reimbursed and then the, the slaves would be returned to Africa, which is one of the solutions that people have offered over the previous decade as they've kind of argued out how to deal with this issue. And so that's the one that Joseph Smith settles on as being fair to the slave owners and not do a lot of economic damage, but still abolish slavery and then allow people to return to Liberia where most of these slaves are returned to. Let's listen to a little clip here from the book. It's kind of hard to listen to, honestly, but it explains sort of the attitudes that people had around the United States and elsewhere around this time when the saints are beginning to leave Nauvoo and make their way west. Like other groups of Christians at this time, however, many white saints wrongly viewed black people as inferior, believing that black skin was the result of God's curse on the biblical figures Cain and Ham. Some had even begun to teach the false idea that black skin was evidence of a person's unrighteous actions in the premortal life. Brigham Young shared some of these views, but before leaving winter quarters, he had also told a mixed-race saint that all people were alike unto God. Of one blood has God made all flesh, he had said. We don't care about the color. This is really messy, Mark. I, I'm confused a little bit. Some of the saints seem to be rather accepting. Some of them seem to have these attitudes that are more common among the, just the general culture. Even Brigham tells this person of mixed-race ancestry, we're all of one blood. Help us understand this a little bit. Well, it is messy. They didn't have a lot of revelation to guide them. They had the Book of Mormon. Uh, they had some policy statements and kind of had pulled back from supporting abolitionism in general. But it's right at this time that they're beginning to try to figure out what's our approach. In Nauvoo, Orson Hyde, one of the apostles, is the one that teaches that blacks were not valiant in the pre-existence. Brigham Young corrects him on that and says that's not true. And so that misconception that is taught in Nauvoo continues well into the 20th century. A lot of people continue to teach that, even though there was an attempt right at the time to correct that. William McCary, 
is the person of mixed race that's referenced in the book. And William McCary is a character. He claims that he's a Native American, but historians have questioned that, uh, that he has no Native American blood, but he's clearly also African. And there are racist people in winter quarters who are saying very cruel things to him. These are Latter-day Saints as well, but they're intolerant. He goes to Brigham Young, and that's the quote that's featured in the book is Brigham Young's uh, response. Brigham Young appears to be very accepting, and we don't know all of his background or his thoughts in this process as well, but it's right at this time, within 1849 leading up to 1852, that the priesthood ban develops. And some people have blamed William Carey for that, saying that it's a response to him because he's quite a character and he ends up leading people away from the church. And some people commit immoralities and other things and then follow him off. And he's gone by the time spring of 1847 when they are selecting people to make that first company that heads to the Great Salt Lake Valley. Three African-Americans are selected as part of that group. Greenflake is the best known, but there's Oscar Crosby and Hark Lay uh, go as well. So the families that they're with, the families are the ones that join the church, correct? And so they're traveling with the families who are going west? Well, no, their families are there at winter quarters, but there seems to be some self-selection. Greenflake particularly seems to want to be involved, and he's kind of at the front of everything. He drives Brigham Young's wagon for a while, the very last day as they get up Immigration Canyon, he's part of the forefront, the group that's assigned to go down and make the road. And he's driving in the wagon with Orson Pratt. Presumably, he's driving the wagon. And if he is, uh, he's the first person to actually come into the Great Salt Lake Valley as Green Flake and African-American. Um, wow. That's so neat. I had that's, no idea. I didn't know that. Well, I, I'm deducing that from his position there. So we have no evidence. Nobody's ever suggested that. But that makes perfect sense that he would most likely be the first person to have come into we, the valley. We have seriously got to remake that film. We need to redo that video clip of the saints entering the valley with Green Flake there with him. And have him as the front person. He comes in, as does Oscar Crosby. They make cabins for their families that are going to come out. They plant crops. They're preparing the way for others who will come. What about their status in the church? These three in particular, Green Flake, Harclay, and Oscar Crosby, are they members of the church or are they just there because of the families that they are enslaved to? Greenflake is a, a member. We know much more about him because he is a member. When his slave owner, James Flake, joined the church, he freed his slaves. Green could have gone his way then. He says, no, I want. I believe too. He, he's baptized. He gathers with the family in Nauvoo. And they interact as though he's a slave. They direct him, tell him what to do, and so on. But he's okay with, with that kind of relationship. But he's also given independence that he's allowed to go with that first company. He goes and prepares willingly for the family, plants the crops, and uh, remains out here in Utah. He ends up dying in Idaho um, at the end of his life. But he uh, stays out here uh, in the West, he, as I mentioned earlier, a daughter 
of his slave owner asked to have him sent down to California as her slave. Brigham Young says he's not healthy. He's old. His family needs him and refuses to let him go down. He appears to be very good friends with Brigham Young. Probably that relationship developed as they crossed the plains together and he drove Young's wagon. But he works for Brigham Young here in, in Utah. He... Uh, continues to have relationship with other prominent uh, members of the church, and Brigham Young ultimately protects him. And shortly after that interaction, he appears in the census as a free black. And so somehow Brigham Young may have played a role. Did Greenflake hold the priesthood? He did not. But Elijah Abel did. Elijah Abel, he was ordained an elder in Kirtland. He was ordained a 70 in Kirtland. Elijah then went on to serve several missions, even after he gathers to Utah. In 1853, uh, he arrives in Utah. The priesthood ban is already public and in place, but he arrives as a 70. He goes and serves a mission after that and uh, continues to be a faithful member in in Utah. And so he continues to hold the priesthood when the ban can't take it away from him. Yeah, from it. yeah. right. So he continues to hold the priesthood, uh, but Green Flakes never ordained. Do we know how the band began? Is there any place we can point to to say, okay, it was during that meeting that this was put into policy? People have offered explanations as to how, and I don't know that we have enough evidence to really say. It appears that sometime around 1849 up to 1852 that there is either a rethinking of these issues or an implementation of earlier uh, discussions. Some have argued that it begins with Joseph Smith. Most historians today lay it at the feet of Brigham Young, but Brigham Young, as far as I know, didn't do anything that he didn't see Joseph Smith do earlier. But he does say when he forcefully implements the ban, he says, if nobody has said before, I say now. But Some people have interpreted that as, oh, well, then he's the first one to say it. But I think that it may be that he's just reinforcing something and making it clear that I am in charge. I am the president of the church. And so I say now, doesn't matter, you know, the different things you've heard before. So So this is tough. And we know that in the United States, you know, slavery is an issue that's dividing the nation. And it's been difficult for church members, it sounds like, as well. So going back to Jane Manning James, did she say anything about the ban? Or did her family say anything about the ban that we we know from them? Okay. uh, (laughs) Jane Manning James, she crosses the plains with the saints. She bears a child. Like many other women crossing the plains, she has a child as she's crossing the plains from winter quarters to... Salt Lake and comes to Utah. When she was in Nauvoo, Emma had apparently approached her, according to you know to her recollection, because by the time she gets to Utah, she has more of a sense of what those earlier discussions were all about. She says Emma approached her and offered that she be adopted. At the time, she didn't know quite what that meant, that it was in a ritual context and that the early endowment allowed her to be sealed as part of Joseph and Emma's family so that she would have been forever part of their family. She remembers that in Utah and she goes, uh, now that she knows more about what temple work's all about, she goes and asks to receive her endowments in the temple and she's denied. After... uh, 
presidency of the church changes, and she goes back again and asks again and is denied again. Eventually, she's allowed to be sealed to Joseph Smith as a servant. And so she accepts that because she wants to at least, you know, have whatever is available to her as part of that ordinance. And so she is sealed to Joseph Smith as one of his servants. And it's not until much later that her temple work's done and she uh, vicariously receives uh, her endowments. These are amazing stories. It's sort of hard not to have spoiler alerts in, <laughs> in the book, but this is history. So I would just invite our listeners, if you go to the church history section of the Gospel Library, you'll find church history topics. And in there, you will find topics for Jane Elizabeth Manning James, Elijah Abel, and slavery and abolition, all of which have nice essays that are written on these topics and in a bibliography that will lead you to additional sources where you can learn more about these particular topics. Mark, what do we know about life for these members of the church, Greenflake and then Parkley and Oscar Crosby? What was it like for them when they arrived in Salt Lake Valley? When they came to the Salt Lake Valley, we like to think of there being no trees anywhere and all just sagebrush. There were some trees in the valley. Uh, there was a lot of grass, apparently as high as the belly of horses, there was sagebrush as well, but it was all pristine, if you will, land. You know, there was no agricultural activities going here. And so they spent that first summer preparing, you know, late summer preparing the land, trying to clear it off, plow it, and get ready to plant so that they could start growing crops. And others were doing the same thing. Everybody that arrived that first year began uh, to, they took City Creek, and they redirected City Creek and started creating irrigation. From the very beginning, they've started irrigating their land and planting crops. And uh, individuals that we've been talking about, Green Flake and Oscar Crosby and Hark Lay, were part of those early efforts as well, digging trenches and helping to bring the water down and clearing out the grass or sagebrush and uh, plowing fields so this was an advanced company that we're talking about. And so some of these people were going to go back to winter quarters to get their families. And I liked what Heber Kimball said. He said, I wish to God we had not got to return. It is a paradise to me. It's one of the most lovely places I ever beheld. So when you were saying we think of just a desert with sagebrush, you know, it, it was so beautiful to him. And then it's neat to think of these three men that were preparing it too for, for the people that were, were going to be coming. I think that's neat. So... Do we know anything about when the families that were their slaveholders, when they arrived, what that was like? Uh, we don't know. They arrived the next spring, and they have cabins waiting for them from this hard work and people preparing the way. And others uh, begin to come, and a lot of people come over the next two years. By 1852, you have company after company after company arriving here in the valley, and then they're sending them north and south and to we began our discussion talking about the Book of Mormon and how the things that were taught in the Book of Mormon were so apparent to the attitudes and the culture of the time. You know, it's hard for members today to think about the priesthood ban that we've talked about and how Elijah Abel could hold the priesthood, but then others weren't allowed to. It's confusing. Bring us up to date. Where, where are we at today as a church and what do you see going forward? Great question. You know, the Book of Mormon talks about all are alike unto God, black and white, bond and free, uh, men and women. And 
when the priesthood ban was implemented, I think it influenced members of the church dramatically to where they read past important information that's in the Book of Mormon and didn't learn from that. And thankfully, when the, the ban was lifted, I think people have gone back and read that text with new eyes and said, oh, we, um, we didn't understand. I see the Book of Mormon becoming much more important all the time as we see how much our Heavenly Father does indeed love all of his children. That's a, a beautiful perspective to have, and we appreciate you sharing that with us. Yeah, as we sit here today, I mean, there are literally thousands of African people, especially in West Africa, joining the church every month. I'm just very grateful that we did have a revelation on the priesthood, and it is now available to people of, of all races regardless. So we appreciate you sharing that with us. So, Mark, there's one other part of this story I was hoping you could talk to us about, and that is, as the saints are organizing and moving west, Brigham has a very specific program as far as the number of companies and how many are in each and how they're led and sort of the minute details. While he's away, Parley P. Pratt and John Taylor, they're there by themselves, right? And they run into some problems and they're like, hey, we're men of action. So they come up with a couple of changes and when Brigham gets back, he's not very happy about this. What's the big deal? As Latter-day Saints today, we think that all of the big issues are settled. From the very beginning on, Joseph Smith walked out of the grove knowing how the first presidency would operate and how apostles should behave, and he, of course, didn't. The first presidency is reorganized in Canesville when they're in winter quarters. And there is now a new first presidency of the church, and there are also 12 apostles. But the how do you interact with one another as apostles? What authority do you have to make decisions if you encounter a problem or a challenge? Those things are still, they're learning. So Parley P. Pratt, particularly, he's a man of action. If there's a problem, he'll take it on. Right. Um, but John Taylor, of course, as well, they encounter problems even though there has been direction from the president of the church as to how they should approach. Well, Brigham Young's the president of the church, but he's also president of the Quorum of the Twelve. And for now a decade, they've been interacting as a quorum of 12 apostles, first with Thomas B. Marsh as president, you know, and uh, then Brigham Young becomes president of the quorum, and they're still acting as fellow quorum members and not as apostles under the direction of the president of the church. And so those are things that they uh, need to work out and to learn. And you almost feel a little sorry for a party if you had, don't you? Oh, He's I got totally this did. Because it didn't seem like he was doing anything wrong. He's like, oh, this is a great idea. <laughs> He's not doing anything. He's doing everything right. right. Yeah. He faces a problem. And as somebody with particular authority to solve those problems for the church, he does solve the problem and he goes forward. But he does so after there's been clear direction to solve it in a different way. Well, and just for clarification, the problem is that is it that some people aren't ready to go? Some people are in poor health and he takes kind of people out of order or? Uh, yeah. 
Revelation, of course, is to move forward in specific companies, in a specific order. And because it's going to be hard to do that, and they're trying to solve these problems, it's easier for him to kind of change what they do to make it easier to accomplish what they need to, rather than to follow the revelation as it's specifically given. So it was a learning process. You know, in the Book of Mormon, when Captain Moroni sends the letter to Pehoran, oh, and it's he's just cringe, and he's just like, "You are terrible, and you're back there, and you're sending us no help, and I'm just ticked." And in reality, Pehoran's kind of in a really bad spot, right? Well, when Parley's kind of getting chewed out, I feel bad for him because he's just kind of trying his best. But I love this in the book. This is Brigham Young. He says, "I forgive you," Brigham replied. And if I don't do right, he added, I want every man so to live in the sunshine of glory to correct me when I'm wrong. I feel bowed down to the grave with the burden of this great people. And that is just a great quote. I loved that. Brigham is speaking authentically because that's his approach throughout this whole thing. He expects a lot of things from everybody, but he expects a lot from himself as well. There's a great story about Erastus Snow, who is crossing the plains and given some responsibility for some cattle. And he fails miserably, and he doesn't quite follow through with things the way he's supposed to. And Brigham Young, in front of everybody, just dresses him down. He's very critical of Erastus. Erastus humbly accepts it and corrects his behavior. And shortly after that, he's called to be an apostle. And you can see Brigham Young had no animosity. He just is direct in his language and lets people know when they're falling short. But he also has a great deal of respect for those that he's challenging, including Parley P. Pratt. Well, Mark Staker, thank you so much for joining us today on the Saints podcast. We've appreciated our time with you. These are hard topics to understand, and, and we just appreciate you spending your valuable time with us to give us a little bit better understanding. Invite our listeners again. You can read more about the people we've talked about today and some of the topics in the church history topics section under church history in the Gospel Library. And we hope you'll join us again next week. We'll be discussing chapter six, Seven Thunders Rolling. So we hope you join us next time. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Ben Godfrey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>